This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this special episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It was recorded in front of a live audience. The guests were Harry Cole, the political editor of The Sun, and James Hill, the political correspondent The Spectator. They are perhaps most famous for having written the book Liz Truss, Out of the Blue. It became so wildly popular that it became a meme in the year she became prime minister. We spoke to them all about what it was like writing the book and how the job of being a political journalist is changing in such a fast-moving environment. Politics and business at times can be very serious. The whole point of these evenings is that they are due to be a bit more light-hearted. We kick off with a bit of comedy from yours truly at the beginning, but it's also mixed in with some searing insight to how our politics and media is changing. If you're interested in coming to future live events, then make sure you sign up to our Substack, which is in the show notes below. That will be where we release information first. Thank you very much. Popular culture since the start of the year has collided with politics on a scale as we've seen with Mr. Bates versus post office. And of course, Paula Venels has had to give back her CBE. And it made me think, what's the actual process for that? Do the, do the beef eaters march around from Buckingham Palace or does she have to go and pop it through the letterbox? Or does she have to go to the post office? <laughs> Would you like that insured? Is it fragile? That'll be £252, please. It's just what the computer says. You are the only one. <laughs> it gives me great pleasure to welcome two people to the stage who probably aren't going to have to worry about handing back their CBEs anytime soon. Harry Cole and James Hill. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. Jimmy, that was genuinely funny. <laughs> He's <getting> so surprised. <laughs> Harry very kindly retweeted my standard put out earlier in the year, seen by so many thousands of people because you're so big on uh, Twitter. But anyway, enough about me. What I want to know about is the book. And I've been dying to ask you this, and I haven't seen either of you recently. When, who approached who about the book? You start, and when were you approached, and what was happening in Tory politics at the time? James is going to tell the outrageous allegation that I was drunk. Um, 
but <laughs> it was a quite literal approach. Uh, I was at the Chez Antoinette popular watering hole in Westminster, Victoria, and you came over after a, a couple of um, bottles, and you said, "Let's write the book. Let's write the book. Let's write the book." We always discussed doing a book at the Man on Sunday, and then the pandemic intervened. Um, uh, but we, we talked about Keir Starmer at the time that he said, "You know, this is August 2022. This trust is clearly going to win the leadership race. Uh, it's two weeks to go." Let's write the book. And I think August 15th, we started it. And I think we sort of signed the contract five days later. And we wrote it in 65 days later. She was out of power and we filed the book that day. <laughs> it was, I mean, everyone sort of takes a piss and says, oh God, did you have to rewrite it? Yeah. We didn't really. We changed a few tenses, but it was more, <laughs> it was more just, we just kept going. Uh, and HarperCollins were absolutely amazing on that time because they led us basically, um, they let us just kind of, they turned it around so quickly. They were sort of editing bits of it as it was going along. Um, but they just kept pushing and pushing and pushing the deadline back. And then there was that sort of crucial tipping moment of thinking, you know, it, the worst case scenario, I think, would have been if she had sort of survived long enough for the book to come out. And then while it was literally the printers <laughs> resigned or but we in in the end it was you know we were always wondering where to end it we were going to end it at the party conferences yes we added 10 more days onto it and and that was that i think the very very last date physically where we could have got it done would be october 31st so she gave us a week to go uh she left office and um there we managed to get it as a line she filed it on the day then yeah the last day and i think actually the best bit was obviously uh, four days previously, because she resigns on the Thursday, and then she goes on the Tuesday. On the Thursday, we met with the publicist. Yeah, we were we were literally in a pub talking about the you know the book media plan for the book. And I was thinking, oh, it's, it's, it's looking bad, but you know, it was this was about one o'clock, and and it was a sort of one of those moments when we sort of look up at the telly on in the pub and went, uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> finish a Guinness again. Go to sir. That speed of that day was insane. And did you, when did you think, oh, God, it, you know, is it screwed? And then thinking, because it ended up winning Sunday Times Political Book of the Year, and it is a superb read. I mean, it could be called How to Climb the Greasy Pole, right? Like, it's extraordinary kind of of those years in Westminster. So when did you think, oh, actually, we're going to benefit from this, the fact that it's all coming to an end incredibly quickly? I think there was, um, I remember James getting a bit, I was just, I was quite amused by it. Because you want to do your day, your political editor of the sun. Yeah, just, like, and it was sort of we put out we put out that the that the book was coming out, and it was about Liz Truss's, and we could argue about the word extraordinary, but it was an extraordinary rise to power. Um, and then so we put the original title out, which then about two weeks later, I think we started to think, well, this isn't looking too good. So we changed the sort of subdeck of the title, and they re-released it on sort of Amazon, and so there was a sort of bubbling piss taking <laughs> trend on Twitter. <laughs> Which uh, James won't mind me saying now that you were getting quite annoyed about. And I was just thinking, <laughs> this is fine. This is going to be fine. I was kind of telling myself this is going to be fine. Better to be talked about than not to be talked about. It's good. Natural buzz. PR. But Keir Starmer stood up at PMQs uh, and literally, I think, what would you say? He said, there's a, there's, a, there's a book about the Prime Minister. And we're promises out by Christmas. We're not sure whether that's the Prime Minister or the book. I always thought, Starmer, you can't pay, you cannot pay for PR like that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only bit of the week where anyone actually watches PMQ. <laughs> and not only that, the first question for the leader of the opposition is probably like the most watched moment in British politics of the week. 
And uh, yeah, he did it. So he signed a copy for him, sent it to him, and it was a free beer. So well, thanks for the spin. I think the actual story is you ambushed him at the lobby drinks. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ambushing you going on. You up yeah, out the yeah. night, branching his copy of the book. A lot of ambushing. How did it feel becoming a bit of a meme, James? Like, because it was that all the people sending around pictures sort of, you know, 50% off, 70% off. Yeah, it was like, take it. Just please, God, <laughs> yeah. take it. The best was uh, the meme, which is on LinkedIn, which was like, if you're having a bad day at work, at least you're not Harry Cole or James Hill. Yeah, the motivational guy, Californian speaker, made us an entire like part of his part, pitch. Part of his pitch. I was like, it could be worse. Your, dream, your dreams are dead, but at least you're not these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and it got shared thirty thousand times. And my bemused father uh, was sending it to me. It's like my colleagues are sending me this. What is this meme thing? Uh, my sister was getting like sort of joked about at university. It was bizarre. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I had like, uh, on the day that she went, I had um, the Spiegel try and get in touch in a very sort of thick German accent. They were like, you are an international laughingstock. How does that feel? Like, <laughs> very, very deadpan German. Yeah. <laughs> they were getting mocked by the Germans, you know. <laughs> um, and the levels of research, um, I'm going to direct this question at James. Um, <laughs> what, is it, what, is it, what is the implication of that? <laughs> Um, was extraordinary. I mean, you've got things like her graduate results from Shell and so on. Like, how do you go about putting a book together like that in that time? Well, I think the first, I mean, the first 20,000 words were easy. It was this, the 20 to 40,000. That was the kind of hard bit where you kind of had plotted it out like a sort of glorified Wikipedia page and you'd written it on Google Doc. And that was the middle bit trying to fill in those kind of years where not much was written about her. And so a lot had been written about her at a young age in Leeds growing up there. Uh, and then a lot had been written about her kind of post 2019 when she became a really big player in the party. But those kind of middle year, particularly trying to go around the selections and stuff, um, I think one of the interesting things was looking at uh, selections. So in the late 2010s, or two, sorry, late 2000s, uh, she obviously was involved in a high-profile selection battle and her kind of going around the different country and all the different constituencies. Local newspaper archives were a great... Student newspaper archives as well were oh my crack, God, yeah, crackers. Right. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, James, so I first met James when we were both at the Man on Sunday and he was a bushy, uh, very enthusiastic graduate who... Um, we would basically get to do all the research or stories. I mean, I'd come in and write a nice headline and, and write, write a nice tidy intro on it. And But James had his ability to find random shit um, <laughs> about people from... And the thing about politicians especially is you don't get to be in the cabinet at 38 unless you've been a weirdo at university. So, <laughs> um, so and, and the thing about the thing about sort of, you know, Oxford in the 80s, in the 90s, UCL, Edinburgh, they all have really, 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 really good student newspapers. Yeah. And they're all archived. And so a couple of days at, at Oxford, the other thing you did, and then UCL and, you know, and it's just there. It's just, it, it was just all there. It just, you just, it was a matter of just going through it. And that's where James's skill set is, particularly the patience to, to go through that stuff. Well, the other thing was um, was doing some interviews. And I had to transcribe them, and I remember uh, some of Harry's interviews involved a couple of glasses, and so I had these sort of you know headphones pressed to my ear trying to transcribe it. And some of the some of the later conversations, you would sometimes go off on tangents. I remember talking about this. Can we get some more breadsticks? Can we get some more breadsticks to the table? <laughs> Which actually made it into a quote in the book. I was reading the quote in the book. I looked at the word. Why are they talking about breadsticks? I was like, oh wait, hang on. That was an interview. Yeah. No, but that was the way because the speed we worked in it as well. Um, and we did have conf you know, conflicting, actually very um, work work very complementary skill sets, but. There was a time because just the speed at which we had to get stuff done, especially the pre, um, the sort of pre twenty nineteen trust stuff, that middle section that James talks about. So talking to people with it, and we used Otter basically, but I would literally be 
in, in a bar in Mayfair talking to a contact, and James would be almost sort of transcribing it as the conversation happened and pulling the stuff out. And it's, it's a remarkable way. We did we did a lot of interviews um, that would you would know, if we were good, not having things like Ultra and apps like that, we would have taken months and months and oh, months. What was extraordinary about this book as well was doing it in August and the kind of hubris, the confidence of many of the people around Liz Trust. It's going to be great. We're going to do all these things that these you know, losers like David Cameron haven't been able to do because they're too scared, etc. And then watching that kind of tra- transform in eight weeks uh, into kind of October and just ashen-faced people talking to us as it all fell apart was was incredible to watch. Watching her as well, in terms of we did two, three, two, two interviews with with Trust herself, and on one, one very much on the up at evening, where um, and this is again where James's encyclopedic knowledge was hilarious because she basically stopped halfway through and said, "You know my life better than I do." <laughs> he was he was picking her up on dates as things that happened. Yeah, life. yeah. yeah. <laughs> to the point, it got a bit weird. <laughs> and then I do have to, I do have to admit, I did throw James under the. Absolutely under the bus. You um, reversed the bus, though. And then reversed. There was a couple of key details that we did, kind of wanted to know. Um, things like her A-level results, um, when she first started dyeing her hair blonde, things yeah. like that. Uh, but, you know, you don't really want to have that conversation with anyone. Um, and so we sort of agreed what we'd do is, that, you know, we'd do our interview, do all this, you know, and then at the end, just do a couple of slip, a couple of you know ones that are going to be a bit awkward. In. But we sort of got kind of forgot. And then I was like, James, I think you have a few more questions to ask, don't you? <laughs> a couple of points to. And then he just was sort of machine gunned her with these like incredibly personal questions. I said, Why are you doing that? What the hell? No, it's all like, Oh, James has got a question. And the Prime Minister, Director of Comms, and I'm going to say, like, Watch, you know, <laughs> Prime Minister, when did he dye your hair blonde? <laughs> Truly holding power to account. Um, can you just hold the mics a bit close to you? Which Sorry, yeah. So it's uh, the audio producers will go uh, crazy. And how was the tension? Like? I mean, you, you you touch on slightly that you're not competitors, and obviously you write versus publications, but more like when you're in those archives and so on. You know, uh, you're sort of diary editor and the spectator. Like, how much do you have to kind of hold back for the book and think, oh god, this would be such a brilliant diary story at this particular moment as well? How do you manage that tension? I think I had a very supportive editor um, and all the team at the Spectator were brilliant while it was lasting. And I think they kind of accepted that, you know, we'd have this new prime minister would be best to know as much possible about her. And so it's kind of taking a longer term approach. Um, but I think that, you know, by writing for slightly different audiences and for uh, being different points in our career, you know, I worked with Harry when uh, I was at Mel on Sunday, as he said, I was a graduate. I think on the day one you started, uh, he started two weeks after me. I tried to take him out of the building or completely lost. He was like, you have no idea where we're going. I was like, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so I think... I mean, there was some stuff I sort of reported beforehand, but I think often talking to people, they wanted their stories told in the book. They were like, this is just for the book. This is for posterity. And that was kind of, okay. you, know, you have to take what they're worth for that. I sort of cut a deal with the son that, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to need a couple of weeks off for this. Actually, this it's fine. Not much happening. No, but we're actually the queen, the death of the, the, death of the queen. I don't think if, if that hadn't happened in a strange way, I don't think we would have got the book finished right. because politics just stopped for 10 days. And you know, our royal team kicked in and took over, which allowed me to basically work from home for ten days, doing a couple of hours a day on on the paper, and and the rest, which another twenty two hours of the day on the on the book. Um, so if that hadn't happened, but then the sort of terms that I was able to write it on was, look, you know, this is the sort of book that we you, you would you know, we would probably buy a serialization for, doing it in house. Yeah. So like I sort of backloaded it, and then once once the book came out, we did you know we, we sort of serialized it within 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 the. News UK family in the Times, Sunday Times, and the um, and the Sun. 
And when did you think, so you're watching this incredible kind of like rise of the trusts and trustites. When did you think this is not going to lie? I think it's going to crash. I think it was for me, it was the day we interviewed the day after the mini budget. And it was, so it was the Friday was the mini budget. The Saturday went and saw her and she was just completely oblivious to how it had all landed. And that's when I think the warning sign started to go. Yeah, we were sitting in the car literally outside. And she was still at Chevening. Well, she, she was because Chief, uh, yeah, Checkers was having work done. Checkers was having work done. So the Prime Minister, as Prime Minister, was still using Foreign Secretary's house. And obviously, you've got the security and all the gates and stuff. So we were a bit early, actually. Um, and so we just pulled up, um, you know, in the in the tiny little hamlet that the you know that it ran the round the corner. And we were just having a chinwag in the car, and then suddenly we just saw truss like sort of wandering towards us with like one copper and her kids. And they're off to go buy coffee in a local pub. And she just had this sort of calm sereneness about her that was just, frankly, quite a reflection, fucking mental. Um, but, like, and we sort of said, like, you know, you know, and she said, oh, everyone's, everyone's being wet, everyone needs to man up. You know, it's, you know, the pound will do what the pound does. You know, everyone just needs to calm down. The last thing she said to me was, um, I'm not sure if I should put, uh, Richard Cobden in my conference speech. And I remember leaving thinking, no one's going to be talking about Richard Cobden when it comes to your conference speech, unfortunately. And it was just this, yeah, this sort of, she has an incredibly thick skin, but almost to a point of of of, of lacking any sort of actually emotional in, intelligence because to not be able to see you know, the, where, how bad it was that day and she's like, I'll be fine. Everything will be fine. Everything will be okay. That's when I really thought, oh, Christ, this is as bad as thing. But the warning signs were there earlier on. In the book, that's the thing. The, the reason I think we didn't really need to rewrite anything, and people, once they read the book, realize that actually it is a warning from history. It reminds me of, um, to say quickly, it's the, the first time I met Liz Truss was actually uh, with the Mel and Sun. Was that when she was incredibly flirty? That was the second time. <laughs> but the first time was, um, it was uh, Tory conference 2018. I was with the Mel and Sunday team. And we had this, we were at this dinner and it was her and uh, her then spad, Larissa uh, Chesterfield, who's now going to work for Zunac. Uh, and basically upstairs was the uh, ports reception for like British sea, they were chanting sea shanty songs. And they were doing like, what shall we do with a drunken sailor? And I remember like Glen Owen, like trying to like have to shout questions. And like dust was coming through the ceiling. <laughs> and it reminds me very much of that tonight. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I like it. It's got a good, it's got a good background. We got all the clippable stuff about this truss in the back, so it's fine. Um, um, and what what do you think's going to happen now in terms of we've seen all the stuff with Popcorn this week, sort of battle for the Tory party, people saying afterwards. What what do you guys think is going to happen with the general election? You had a great exclusive earlier this week that Sunak's now thinking of October rather yeah. than November. Yeah, I think so. I think I think just if you're looking at the, the direction of travel that the West is going in. Um, Trump looks like he's. I think. I think without getting too technical and boring, I think that there is an overcompensation on people's. Um, lots of people have got it wrong in 2016 when Trump won, and now slightly overcompensating and saying, you know, doom laden predictions that he's definitely going to win. I think is a lot tighter than um, than you would have it believe. But there is a large chance that geopolitics once again gets upended. Yeah. Um. In in November, and in all likelihood, it's going to be a Labour victory, and I think. The way it was told to me was, you know, yes, it's obviously a decision entirely for the Prime Minister when to go to the country, but I think some wiser hands and people have been around the block for a while and people who, you know, are paid to look out for our national interests um, have basically said, look, you're probably going to lose. Do we really want, in the middle of, you know, whatever happens, you know, 
It's, Trump, Trump, if Trump does win, you know, it's, you know, whatever happens around then, do we really want a new and inexperienced Labour government coming in immediately when actually you could have given me, you could basically give a month's head start to get it fed in? No, we are NATO, you know, two most important countries in NATO, two most important countries in G7, I'd argue, in terms of, of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in the Red Sea. Um, you know, you can't have both the UK and the US. Yeah, undergoing fundamental change. I think that that message has got through. That's interesting. Well, I wrote a substat piece at the start of the year saying that the US presidency wasn't going to have any impact on it. (laughs) You've basically completely changed my mind. What and let's I want to dive a bit more into the the jobs that you do because I'm fascinated by director. I realize James, you've been yeah, exactly. It's there, it's in yeah. it's in the <laughs> Uh, but you've been promoted recently to political correspondent as well. Woohoo, me. Um, and um, well, I, I knew you obviously started out sort of doing diaries as well, Harry. I just I'd love to what's the job with diary editor is a young 20 something in Westminster trying to get stories and so on, like he used to. It used to be a really, really good way of basically subsidizing your lifestyle because if you are doing so, I used to string for the Evening Standard Diary back in the day and you basically get to go to three different parties a night and live off of champagne and canapes, which sounds fun until about six months in. The last thing you ever want to do is eat one of those little tiny little York pudding to the roast beef and then pull. Um, but no, it's it's a sort of entry-level an entry level gig. But in a weird way, I mean, if you... If you look at sort of people who've done it, it's a it's a very good way of basically it, it teaches you a very good skill set of learning that nothing holds, everything can be told in forty words if you want it to be, and you don't need that you don't need that eighteenth paragraph of quotes in a story to make it fun and pithy and, and interesting and good. And so it's a very good way of tight, concise, fast moving gossip stories is a very good training route to avoid and writing boring stories. And Twitter hasn't killed it? Well, we're all bloggers now. We're all talking. Talk, I started out coming through the blogosphere, as they called it then. But now, you know, every single news, we're all we're all bloggers now. Everything is almost online first. Twitter has killed a little bit. You're never going to get an exclusive story off of Twitter because, by default, Twitter is a publisher. Once it's been published, it's out there. The story's out there. So I always say to anyone that works for me and anyone who asks for advice on coming through, get off Twitter. I'll say a bit, a bit ruder. Um, and get out because it's not. It's not. You're never going to get an exclusive on what someone's already written. It. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, being a diarist is enormous, good fun, great training. Uh, basically, I started doing it at a university. I remember I sort of caused a bit of an upset with the university press office because I sold a copy of my chancellor uh, Baroness Hale's speech uh, at Bristol the week before the, mi- the uh, well the, mi- the before the week the, the Miller verdict, the Supreme Court. So, it was like, how the hell did the Times get a copy of this? Uh, so that was good fun. Uh, I remember like. Uh, doing lots of in-person events so um uh, I, I was you know, had to chase poor michael kane around somerset house a few years ago what do you think of brexit mr kane um that was good fun uh, I, I accidentally spilled a glass of wine on um uh, naomi campbell once at the vogue 100 party uh i know my life flashed from my eyes um so basically it was just like a really um you just go away meeting people and having to try and you know strike up a conversation get a story in 30 seconds or so the other thing about diaries is people never forget ever and like, i'll have people now all come up to me and be like, Ooh, in 2009, you wrote this about me. And I'm like, ah, I've completely forgotten that, but you clearly haven't. Um, that's uh, because it's about people on the way up as well. It's, yeah. It's, and actually, that's why I think, that's why I think it was weirdly that bringing it back to the book was quite that 2010 election when all of that gang came in the Quasis, the Ravs, the Trusses, the Pretty Patels, you know, they, 
I arrived in the sea, in the Westminster scene, sort of 2009 time, and then that that mob arrived into in May 2010. So actually, in a weird way, we sort of start like they were all very new to it. I was all very new to it, and actually, sort of slightly, the tide came up. Yeah, and it's similar. Well, not obviously. Obviously, they went on to great things and in the cabinet and blah blah blah. blah. And I, you know, I throw rocks from the sidelines. But um, you know, it they, a lot of the contacts I had as a very junior reporter ended up going to be very senior people. So, but when they were when we first met, doing diary stories and as James says, you know, trawling the trawling the pubs of Westminster, they were they were pretty junior as well. And you, there's a line in the book that really stuck with me that you called the 2010 intake of Conservative MPs. Probably the best generation since 1960. Sounds like a bit of James Rose. <laughs> <laughs> like I think I think it was 1950. We called it yeah, or 1983, because that that election had you know uh, people like um, Heath and Wardley and McLeod and Powell and all people who went off. I think Robert Carr was in that. I think you know who then become the mainstays of the Tory cabinets of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and that 2010 intake, I believe, produced about 26 cabinet ministers. People, or people who would sit around the cabinet table, and all of them, only one of them became prime minister, and that was Liz Truss. So a big part of this book was how does she survive where others fail, cut down in the fray of Brexit and COVID. Uh, others resigned. She never did. She never really threatened to resign. I think the only time she really thought about it was March 2019, when, frankly, who wasn't resigning from Theresa May's government. Um, and so I think... That's right, James. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, sort of halted look descended over your eyes there. Oh, sorry, no. Um, but yeah, no. And so uh, why did she survive when others failed? Was what? I did always have a theory that no one from the 2010 intake might end up being prime minister because it would end up being a circular firing squad. But again... They the... were, it was because of the expenses crisis in 2009. There was just the number of... We'll get a... You, you, I suspect we'll, we'll get a similarly large intake in, in the election when it, when it comes, presumably October, on both sides. Because there's 55 Tory MPs now standing down. There's the natural churn of you know it's it's tea time in the cricket match and it's the other guys the other the other guys turn to bat, um, and then on the Labour side they've actually had some pretty poor intakes under the Corbyn years. The seventeen intake was pretty shock, shocking. Um, uh, they you know they only gained one seat in 2019, and then you know lots of the people that have come in have been you know the the people that are coming in by elections not being very impressive at all. Um, Do you think the standard of our politicians is dropping? So I was talking about this the other night. It's a standard dropping, or are we just, or are we just getting older, or, or are we getting older. Or, <laughs> no, it's a standard dropping, or are we, or is just accountability increasing? I think it. I mean, would there be duffer MPs in the yeah in the in previous parts? Of course, yeah. You know, is, is politics now a dirtier business and seedier and grubbier and more corrupt than ever before? I don't think it is. I just think the bar is much the standards bar is much higher now, and stuff that. Five, 10, 15 years when I started out at Westminster, people wouldn't have got away with. Yes. Would have got away with. Now, especially on the sex and bullying side of things, the game has completely changed. And so the reason we've got the record number of by-elections and number, number of MPs suspended and the fact that the independents are now a larger brock than the, um, the Lib Dems. I mean, there are more people suspended by the two main parties than there are Lib Dems in Parliament. So they're technically, they, they technically, you know, if the SNP, you know, weren't there, they'd, they'd get a question at PMQs. So like, <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of the Nazis, I'd like to say. Um, so it was, um, you know, I, our standards higher. Yeah, definitely. I don't think. I think everyone likes to think that the current crop of politicians are the worst ever, but. You know, who are some rising stars to kind of look out for on both Labour and Tory benches that we might not come across yet? Come on, Jeff. 
I, th- I think uh, Laura Farris will be one to watch. I think she's one of the people who's actually going to be due to hold her seat. Her, her father was an MP as well, but she's been made a Home Office Minister. Uh, I think she's quite impressive on one of the Tory side. Uh, and then I think, uh, you know, you've got to look at Labour people who got promoted in the last reshuffle. So people like, uh, she's been out the airwaves because of obviously what's been happening in Gaza, but Shabana Mahmood, I think is very impressive as uh, Shadow Justice Secretary. Um, but frankly, a lot of the uh, ministers of the next Labour government, if that happens to be the case later this year, uh, are being selected now because I think the next intake is probably going to be more than 50% of the whole parliamentary party in Labour is going to be MP, new MPs, backbenchers, um, new intake. And so it's going to be a whole new different type of parliament feel to it. I once um, uh, tweeted that I thought Darren Jones, when he was um, he was the Labour, he was the uh, chairman of the Business Select Committee, and it was quite it was quite a long time ago, sort of Diane Corbyn days. And I said, I just tweeted that you know, could this be the Labour's next Prime Minister? Uh, he's now in down in the shadow cabinet as a uh, as well, the chief secretary. Um, he got stopped me in the corridor about three days later and said, "Please don't ever tweet that again." It was incredibly unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing any aspirational Labour politician under Corbyn needs to be is being tipped by the sun. To, uh, <laughs> to, but on the story, I think I think what happened. Darren Jones is very good, by the way. Darren Jones, yeah. Show. Oh, good. There we go. Darren Jones is very good. Um, West Streeting, obviously, I think has got a lot to offer. He really can square off the unions um, if he does become deeply unpopular as Labour health secretaries, which Labour's health secretary tend to do. Um, on the government side now is the next prime minister tory prime minister even elected yet possibly not is the next tory prime minister someone you've never heard of almost certainly i'd say my tip is the exchequer secretary what's he called gareth davies i think he's a really impressive guy grantham overdue an uh, pm from grantham um but it depends what happens in the you know if if the if his elections are closer than people think and um there's a sort of route back for the Tories in one go, if they can do it in five years, if they could, you know, um, then I think they might not go full mental and and they might choose someone a bit more unifying. Um, so it's nothing like James Cleverly. But if it's the Tonking that it's looking like it's going to be, they're going to need a, a, a extended period of shouty crackers. Um, and you said that you don't become senior cabinet minister by the age of 38 without being weird at university. Some might say you don't become political manager of the sun in your mid thirties, uh, similar age. But talk to us about the uh, about the job. Like, obviously, you've got a big decision to make about declaration and stuff. I'm not expecting that as an exclusive. No, no sorry. <laughs> I'll come back and talk about it. With, with, uh, You'll be the last to know. That's what I used to say to you when I was in number ten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, please stop calling this number. Yeah. <laughs> um, what? Um, but well, to talk to us about the job, Harry. I mean, you've spent through. It's great. In the yeah. stuff, like it's, it's amazing. So I mean, look, I've, without being too sort of academic pompous, um, you know, I, I've always the sort of I came through on the wave of completely changing of, of how the media works and the fact that. You know, we were selling four million copies, you know, in, in the in the nineteen ninety seven, and we're not selling that now. But the you know, we're doing more more stuff. We're doing far more across multiple platforms, across video, across audio, across the website, um, on two sides of the pond now. Um, so you know, where before you know, the job of a political editor could be would be quite a civilized birth. You'd be, you know, you'd be in for ten. You'd you know you'd. <laughs> write a list in the morning and you know then take lunch um sort of come back about four uh write some copy 
my predecessor, Trevor Kavanagh, who did the job for, for 35, uh, for 25 years, um, used to leave the office at six. And we had a, he, he was with this is a life change when he got a car phone where he would basically drive back to his house in Epsom and dictate the copy down the phone from the car, which, <laughs> which to me now sounds like the height of sophistication. <laughs> um, but now it's literally, you know, we've got someone on board, we've got someone reporting on politics from 7am till 11pm at night. Um, we're doing sort of 15 and 16 stories a day um, across online, across um, uh, across print. We've sort of, we're spent most of my time in this job has been basically merging well, the first thing I had to do really when I got the job is merging the print and the online operation into one team. And we were so much wasted of people that, you know, one person would write the story for online and someone else would write it for the paper. Absolutely no point in that. It's getting everyone into that yeah, thing. Yeah. And now, at the same time, we're doing that now with video and we're integrating the fact that every story needs video content because 95% basically of our readers who are reading politics stories on, 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 the, on the online are looking at their phone and they'd often rather just have it told to them in 10 seconds, in, in 45 seconds in video, then, yeah, so people are consuming the news in an entirely different way. And that my job has completely changed in the fact that we've got to be a fast, fair, correct, and number one all the time, regardless of platforms. So, you know, people, people phone up and moan about things I tweet, but probably 1% of my content is on there. Yeah. Most of it you'll ever see. Um, right. We are going to do some questions in a minute, but I've got some quick fire questions. From. Where it goes. When did you start dyeing your hair blonde? It's quick. No, but it's worse than that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's going to be quick fire questions from the book. So I, I was running around the park reading these and I think you've got to ask a question to us. So uh, we're, we're James's heavy favourite with this. Um, what did Liz Truss get in her shell graduate exams? Oh, it was like B or B minus, was it? It was the, the second ranking, whatever it was, which was. She was on her way to corporate glory, but not going to be the CEO. Um, what did Donald Trump write in the book? Oh, good question. To Liz Truss. We're going to do great things or something? Let's get a great deal. Let's get a great deal. Uh, Beautiful deal. It's. Uh, what was the slack? Oh. Then she sticks. What was the snack that Liz Truss had with her husband in town oh. Downing Street? When she decided she was going to start cheddar cheese and Sauvignon Blanc and pork pie, I think. Yes, pork pie. Very good. <laughs> That's that is colour. That is colour. That is that is terrific. Two um, people in the room. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> How did we? <laughs> who who leaves? <laughs> um, what was in her rider? Uh, no mayonnaise. Absolutely no mayonnaise. Uh, sushi. My second question. Okay. Bottle of Sauvignon Blanc in the hotel room without fail chilled uh bagels something about bagels uh and she only liked the blue m&ms <laughs> <That's not that>. <laughs> <laughs> um pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. um quinton let uh quinton let's described her new haircut as a cross between two politicians which politicians were they uh, one was thatcher no michael sambrican yes yeah a one slightly more famous. Boris. No. Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Uh, oh. um, can you tell us the story about um, Quasi Quarteng calling Alistair Jack, who is the Scottish Secretary? Oh, I love the story. In the presence of a great Chief Whip as well, this is a great story to uh, this is a great story to um, tell. So it's it's about as tall as you get. A 
So the chief whip and someone else, Alice Jack, the Scotland secretary, obviously were shooting on a, on a Tuesday morning uh, <laughs> in their Range Rovers. And I, from memory, I think Quasi phones, this is when Boris is going down the Swanee, and Quasi phones Alice Jack, massively Boris supporting ally of, of Boris Johnson. And starts, um, they're driving, they're in the Range Rover on, between pegs. And uh, Quasi's giving a little, oh, mate, no, like, oh, we're, we're, yeah, mate, Boris is fucked, mate. Like, where, where, where's the life bit? What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? You've got to get on board with Liz, yeah? And um, Alistair Jack just says very calmly, uh, I disagree, Quasi. And what's furthermore, I'd like you to know that you're on speakerphone and the chief whip sitting next to me. <laughs> uh, and then very quickly, about 10 minutes later, I think Liz phoned back and was like, he wasn't speaking for me. I'm, not, I'm loyal. And then once the sort of stench of decay gets into a political party like that, that's when the um, that's when people start doing stupid things like um, and a final question for me before we go to the floor for a couple so get your uh, questions ready um, you genuinely probably got the political scoop of the decade with Matt Hancock and his aides just how does that come about what's the process that you then go through like give us the real details behind the story of what the job entails yeah. off the record right <laughs> <laughs> this isn't, isn't going to be broadcast yeah, anyway no, no, no. I am afraid that is where we finish the recording here. If you want to come to future Jimmy's Jobs live events, just make sure you sign up to the Substack in the show notes below. And here's a final question that I posed to Harry and James on the future of journalism and what advice they would give young journalists. Final question, piece of advice for aspiring young journalists, what should they be doing? Always answer a ringing phone and don't, don't, don't go to journalism college. It's a waste of time. Uh, watch Harry Cole's talk on the tab on YouTube. Uh, and that actually, he, well, he's been very nice to me tonight. So I'll just say that was one of the reasons I became a journalist. So. Oh, yeah.